Radio MD. RadioMD.com. Hear it from the doctor with expert guests from the American Academy of Pediatrics. It's Healthy Children. Now, our favorite mom, Melanie Cole, MS. Welcome to Healthy Children, where all of our expert guests are provided by the American Academy of Pediatrics. I'm Melanie Cole, and today we're talking about gender identity and presentation and how parents can support their transgender child. Joining me is Dr. Ilana Shearer. She's a pediatrician with a specialty in caring for gender nonconforming and transgender youth. She's also a member of the AAP section on lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender health and wellness. Dr. Shearer, it's a pleasure to have you join us today. So can you explain for the listeners that may not really understand some of the terminology, what does transgender mean? Melanie, thank you so much for having me and thanks for the opportunity to clarify because I think some of the language does get really confusing, especially because it seems to change so frequently. When I talk about gender, I usually will explain that we can divide it into three different aspects. There is the biological piece, which is the sex assigned at birth, and that I usually call sex rather than gender. There's the gender identity, which is one's internal sense of self, like whether you know yourself to be female or male or something other than that. And then there's the gender expression, which is the way that you display the world. So those you wear, your hairstyle, makeup, things like that, that kind of signal to the outside world what your gender is. So transgender broadly refers to somebody whose gender identity, what they know themselves to be in their brain, does not align with the sex that they were assigned at birth. So for example, someone who is assigned male at birth, but knows themselves to be a woman, would be considered a transgender woman. Where this gets a little bit more confusing is when we talk about children, we often don't know what their gender identity is because being able to express your gender identity means that you have to have the verbal skills and the language to be able to say that. And sometimes kids don't develop that until they're a little bit older or be able to develop the ability to communicate their gender. Um, yet based on their expression, so their interests, their clothing, things like that, we may recognize that there might be something going on where their gender identity might be different from the sex they're assigned at birth. And for those kids, we use a broader category. So I prefer using the term gender diverse because I feel like it is a positive and inclusive term to refer to those kids. But you also may hear terms like gender nonconforming, gender variant, gender fabulous, gender creative, to refer to kids who haven't yet been able to like claim that label for themselves of being transgender. And they may or may not be transgender, but that the adults around them are noticing that something is a little bit different about their gender expression. Well, thank you for that. So many people have so many questions. So. Tell us a little bit, because I think one of the most oft asked questions by people that are not familiar with this is, what's the difference between being transgender or gender diverse or being gay or being gender nonconforming? Because they always assume one goes with the other. Yes, that is a very common misconception. And I will try to clear that up. Um, but I have to also admit that 
occasionally I will meet a young person who just completely blows my mind and everything I thought I knew and I thought I was teaching and gives me a new understanding of how sexual orientation and gender identity interplay with each other. But the way that I would describe it is that gender identity is who you are and sexual orientation is who you want to be with. So it's about attraction to other versus identity in the self. So for example, I identify as a cisgender woman. Um, cisgender means that I was assigned female at birth and I identify as female, so as opposed to transgender. And if I am attracted to other women, then I may have orientation of lesbian. If I'm attracted only to men, I would be considered to be straight. Yet if you are a gender diverse person, you also can have that same variety of sexual orientation identities that a cisgender person has. So the transgender woman that I, you know, the hypothetical person that I described earlier might be attracted only to cisgender women, or she might be attracted only to cisgender men, or she might be attracted to all women, regardless of their assigned sex, or she might be attracted to everyone or no one. So there's just as much diversity in her sense of attraction as there is for a cisgender person. Being a transgender woman does not mean anything about who she's attracted to and who she desires to be intimate with. Where this gets really confusing is that I think that um, our English language is very confusing because it lacks precision when we talk about attractions. For example, we probably all learned that you can be gay, straight, lesbian, or bisexual. But all of those identities assume that we are talking about cisgender people and that there are only two genders that one can be attracted to. And we know that that's not the case. So you may hear young people who recognize the limitations of our language describing themselves with words like pansexual or genderqueer or queer. Um, and I wanna just, just note that for those of us who are over 40, queer um, will make us cringe a little bit because it has very often been used as a derogatory term, but it is also a term that the younger generations are embracing as being a way that they describe themselves. So I would caution I'm you. really glad that you said <laughs> yes. that. Because as a 57-year-old woman, I've asked my daughter about that particular term, and I'm like, but is that derogatory? And we've heard, I've heard... I've heard dyke the same way, yes. that it used to be derogatory and now not so much. Well, I would say not so much, but I would really caution anyone listening to this from using the term to describe anyone, right? It's one of those things where, where you might find that young people are very happy identifying that way, but it still might be inappropriate for someone of our generation to be like, oh, they're queer or they're a dyke, unless they have self-identified themselves that way. I'm so, glad you told us that. Yes. So those terms are meant to be much more inclusive of the reality that there are huge varieties of gender. There's even a term um, scoliosexual for people who are attracted to other trans bodies or, or people uh, non attracted mainly more toward non-binary people. So we're getting a lot more precision in language. But one of the challenges remains that the word sex can refer to the act and the attraction, or it can refer to what genitals and chromosomes that you're born with. And those are actually two totally different things. But when we have terms like bisexual, 
it's very confusing. Are we talking about someone who was assigned two sexes at birth, or are we talking to some about someone who is attracted to two genders? There isn't that precision. Another thing to think about, and why this gets confusing, is that a lot of people who are gender diverse also are not straight. And a lot of people who are not straight are gender diverse. So there's a lot of crossover. Uh, where this came up a lot is in some of the earlier studies that looked at gender diversity in children and looked at what were the long-term outcomes their identity formation. Many of, for example, the assigned boys who had more feminine gender expressions did not grow up to identify as girls, they grew up to identify as gay men. So their interest in a stereotypical feminine expression was not actually about their gender identity. It was actually a lot more about their sexual identity, even though at their young ages they didn't have an awareness yet. We know that kids have an awareness of their gender identity as young as two, but most of the time there's not that same awareness of sexual identity until later childhood years, 9, 10, 11 is usually the earliest that we are um, seeing kids become aware of that. And so for all of those reasons, it's even though gender identity and sexual orientation are totally separate developmental pieces, there is so much interplay with how people identify themselves that I can understand why it is so confusing. Well, thank you so much for clearing so much of that up. Now, another thing, since we're talking about supporting your child, parents and certainly people of a certain age don't know what pronouns to use and they don't understand they because <laughs> they when I first got it explained to me from my daughter she was explaining and I said but isn't that like something that is plural mm -hmm. and she said and she gave me this quote she said what are they doing over there mm -hmm. what is what is it that they're doing when somebody, you know, just giving me an example of using they or them. Yeah. And it made sense to me then when she did that. Yeah, what I tell people who have a hard time wrapping their heads around it is I tell them that they actually use they often instead of a pronoun when they don't know the gender of the That's person what she was talking about. So, for example, if you're on the bus and you see someone leaves the backpack behind, but you don't see the person you might go up to the bus driver and say, hey, someone left their backpack behind, right? Yep. You're using they as a singular without even recognizing it. So people who want to be referred to using they, them pronouns are really not asking something that is so out of the ordinary of what we typically do in the English language. But for people who are still really confused, um, I can't remember where I heard this, but I'd love to attribute it. But the story that I heard is a little kid told their parents, whenever you have trouble remembering my pronoun, just imagine that there's a hamster in my pocket. And when you talk to us, just think that you're talking to both of us and you will naturally use they pronouns. And so I often will tell my parents, like, use the hamster in the pocket trick if you're having trouble remembering which pronouns to use. That's amazing. What a great trick mm -hmm. to use. That's excellent. Now, when we talk about our children, of course, you know, I just get choked up if I even think about mine. But one of the things that we've seen are barriers to health care in this country, whether it is mm -hmm. for children that are gender diverse 
you know, of different populations, minorities, underserved populations. There is healthcare disparities in this country. Mm-hmm. And when we think of the barriers to healthcare for, and treatment for the LGBTQ community, tell us a little bit about what you've seen and what you personally are doing to help that and to help work with parents so that these kids can get whatever help they need, whether it's mental health counseling so that they can come to terms with it and work with their parents who may not be as okay with it, or whether it is actual gender transition, surgery, hormones, whatever it is. Tell us a little bit about some of the barriers to healthcare that you have seen and where you think it's headed. Yeah, of course. So the barriers are huge. And just off the top of my mind, I think it breaks down into a couple categories. There is the lack of education and comfort by the primary care providers. There's the lack of access to mental health care that is, we are so familiar with, unfortunately, that are affecting all of our kids. There is the history of pathologization and trauma that has been inflicted on people with trans bodies or LGBT people by the medical field. And then there is also just the lack of access to medical care for people who are desiring gender transition. So as far as the lack of education, comfort, and capacity among primary care providers, that's the area that I am most interested in influencing because I feel that as a primary care pediatrician, that's where I have the most potential for change. And so I have been part of various projects working with different medical school and residency curriculum. I, um, through the section on LGBT health and wellness through the AAP, have worked on various projects that increase the capacity for pediatricians and for pediatric providers to to provide care for this population. Because the vast majority of gender diverse kids don't need any kind of specialized care. The vast majority may not be interested in any kind of gender transition. But what they need is a warm, supportive, and loving environment in their own home and their own community and their own pediatrician. And I think a lot of pediatric providers are not aware how much they can provide that without referring them somewhere else. So for example, educating providers about how to coach parents to be affirming and supportive for their gender diverse child, especially if the child is young. As the child gets older, being prepared to discuss things like chest binding or stopping periods or other interventions that don't require specialized medications to help someone feel more comfortable in their body. And I think that that's an area where the AAP has really done a great amount of work to support pediatric providers, but I think there's still a lot of work to do. The second issue is access to appropriate mental health care. And I don't think I need to go into detail with this because I think all of us who are practicing in the trenches right now are unfortunately so from this problem. Well, I mean, it's an epidemic in this country, no matter what your situation with our kids. They're all, you know, going through stuff right now. Yeah. And, and finding providers who have a specialized ability and understanding of how to be gender affirming is challenging. Um, But even just finding providers is challenging, let alone providers who would see kids or possibly see kids in person if that's required. It's just been so challenging on so many levels. Then there's the history of trauma that um, 
when there are surveys and studies done with transgender young adults looking at their experiences in the healthcare system, huge numbers of them report being denied care, being mistreated, and actually being physically or sexually assaulted by healthcare providers in the healthcare system. And this is appalling to me, but I think it's really important for providers to understand because sometimes we get patients who may not trust us or who, or who may seem like they're kind of antagonizing us. And just knowing that there is the history of great trauma in this community. Up until the early 1970s, being lesbian, gay, or bisexual was considered a mental health illness, right? It was considered a disease. And so there's that level of trauma. But then also right now with gender care, there's a lot of um, questioning of people's gender identities, a lot of gatekeeping, um, and a lot of really questionable practices that some providers have brought in as far as um, not providing affirming, loving care environments for these young people. And so that has obviously impacted people's ability to get care um, and then their ability to trust and feel comfortable when they are coming in for care. And I have heard many, many stories like one young person in my practice who uh, I was only doing gender care for him, but he was still seeing his primary care pediatrician. And one time over the holidays, he was feeling suicidal. And so he did the right thing and he called his pediatrician and the pediatrician said, oh, I don't deal with that. You have to talk to your trans care provider. And Ugh. that was appalling to me, right? Like, you know, his suicidal ideation may or may not have been related to his gender identity. I mean, we know that trans kids are multiply times higher, like eight times higher to have attempted suicide in their lifetime. But it is also something that in general pediatrics, we should know how to manage. It does not require specialty management to do a safety assessment and make sure someone's getting mental health care. I've heard stories like someone comes into the hospital with a broken arm and there's so much fixation on what pronouns and what name to use that they really miss the main issue is this poor person who happens to be trans has a broken arm. And that's actually so common that in the medical literature, it has a name called trans broken arm syndrome, where trans people repeatedly are denied health care for non-trans related reasons because the healthcare system gets so caught up in the trans identity, which is not actually even relevant to what they're presenting with. This is such an enlightening episode, Dr. Shearer. <laughs> I mean, it is. You are you're you. highlighting things that not many of us hear about very often, and that's certainly the intent of podcasts like this, is to get this word out there so that these kids feel like they have a safe space, feel like they have the support system. And those stories, while horrifying, may actually help some providers or parents to say, I don't know why this is something that I can't recognize or accept or deal with. And certainly the political climate in this country right. is also not you know, really not being conducive and loving and nurturing. I mean, some people are, but not others. Well, and that's something that I really want to talk about. I'm going to get political here because I think this is important, that in the last year, transgender medical care has become a weapon of the right. And we are seeing in many, many states right now, I think we're up to like 18 or 20 states, legislation introduced that is meant to deny or ban care 
that's gender affirming for youth. And some of these bills have been overturned and some of them have been put into place. And I know the AAP has been really active in fighting those. But, you know, the one of the largest transgender youth centers in Texas has been forced to shut down to taking new referrals. I think they see over 600 kids and now not able to see any new ones because of these political pressures. And we're seeing that happen Well, tell them to come the to Illinois. <laughs> well, I we mean, are welcoming right? here. Like, it's, you know, we... I have patients that fly in to see me from other states. I have had patients who have come in from other countries to see me. And right now, the wait time for an appointment at an academic gender center in the Bay Area where I live, which is UCSF or Stanford, six to 12 months. And so there is an enormous, enormous demand for this care. And we are not able to meet the demand, both because of a lack of, you know, knowledgeable healthcare providers and infrastructure in our clinic setting. But now politics is coming in on top of that and limiting access and forcing kids to have to fly in from other states to get care. I will tell you one sort of hopeful thing, and we do a lot of podcasts here at Radio MD, and a bunch of my hospitals, even ones children's hospitals in rural areas, are talking about transgender care and the clinics that they've opened and the offerings that they have. So I'm hoping that it is being at least recognized as we wrap up. I'd like your key takeaways, what you feel are the most important messages for parents in supporting their child as they are gender diverse or struggling with their identity, struggling with any kinds of issues that our kids are struggling with right now and how we can best hold them tight, give them what they need and help them to be happy and fulfilled. Yeah, I think the the biggest takeaway is that with all of the research that's been done on poor health outcomes for gender diverse people, that one of the major, major mitigating factors is family acceptance. It reduces the risk of suicidal ideation eightfold and reduces all of the other risks. And so that is the most powerful thing that I can convey in this message, that families need to support their kids. And what that looks like is that kids know who they are from really young ages. And they may or may not articulate that to the people around them. If they're getting a lot of negative feedback from people around them, they're going to stop telling you who they are. But when they tell you who they are, you should believe them as a parent and recognize I think sometimes parents kind of get caught up in, in, well, is my child going to be gay? Are they going to be trans? Are we going to have to get, you know, blockers or hormones? But really the important thing is that your kid needs support for where they are now and to not get so caught up in where they're going to be in the future, but just recognize that they're telling you something really important about themselves and that they are seeing how you're going to respond. And if you are able to respond in a way that's affirming and saying, I love you, you're always my child. I love you no matter who you are. And to be able to proudly express the outside world, to be able to call the grandparents and say, hey, we want you to know that you have a granddaughter, not a grandson, and we're now going to use she, her pronouns. Um, Or to be able to be their ally if they are mistreated around their gender identity and stand up for them and say, hey, that's not right. That those are really powerful ways that you can tell your kid that, that you love who they are and that you love who they are in the world. Even if their gender identity shifts or their pronouns shift again, which can happen, we know that kids shift, you know, their sense of themselves and they try, especially in adolescence, they may try on different 
identities before they they um, settle into one that feels like it really fits for them. When they do that, they are asking us to affirm that we love and care and support them for who they are and who they're telling us they are. And as they get trust that they will get love for who they are, it gives them the space to open up and really make these new discoveries about themselves. And it gives them the space and pride to be successful out in the world. What a beautiful place to end and a great sentiment for parents. You know, that's exactly what this podcast is all about, is teaching parents how to listen, how to communicate with our kids, because that's where it all comes in. And whether they need extra support or just our loving arms around them, that's our job. And the AAP is the gold standard in helping parents to raise our kids and raise them happy and safe, because that is what it's all about. And boy, do we love our pediatricians here on Healthy Children. Please share this show (laughs) with your friends and family on your social channels. How important is the information that we gave today? Dr. Shearer, thank you so much for coming on. Not only sharing your your passion, but your incredible expertise in an area that seems a mystery to some people. Well, you've cleared up a lot of it today. Remember, you can listen on Spotify and iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Podcast, anywhere that podcasts are played, but we want you to listen at RadioMD.com. So for the American Academy of Pediatrics, Healthy Children, and Radio MD, this is Melanie Cole. Thanks for listening.